I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's a special episode. My guests are Laura Dubois and Marley Clements, who are the producers of the documentary Active Measures. It's a film that chronicles in great detail what they describe as the most successful espionage campaign in Russia's history. And that campaign was the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Now, this is a really special episode given what's happening right now with the Mueller investigation with Flynn and Manafort and Kushner and Trump, of course. I really wanted to have Laura and Marcy on because, first of all, it's a really, really good documentary. I was floored by the level of detail and all of the connections that they make and the research that they've done to track this campaign and the targeting of Trump specifically going back as far as the 80s. And the parallels to similar operations that Russia and Putin have run before in other countries are remarkable. So this documentary, which is directed by Jack Bryan, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes, is about two hours long. But I wanted to have Laura and Marcy on to discuss many of the details, you know, kind of the reading between the lines details that aren't necessarily in the documentary. So there are no spoilers in this episode, but I do think they complement each other. Without further ado, here are Laura Dubois and Marcy Clements of Active Measures. Marley, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jen. We're really excited to be here. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much for having us. I have so many questions. So by the way, how did you two come across this project? How did you get involved? Sure. Laura, you want to do it? Uh, Sure. So I um, have been producing for Jack Bryan for about eight years now. And uh, we typically work on narrative films. And we were very close to putting one into action. And then he called me on April 2017, around like April 1st, 2017, April April Fools. And (laughs) was like, hey, we should uh, drop everything we're doing. Um, I've been with Marley. We've been bunkering on this documentary. And uh, let's just start making this. Yeah. So on my end, um, my background is not in film. Uh, Laura handles all the film stuff and is wonderful and has done a great job of teaching me. But in my personal history, career history has been mostly political. So I've been sort of a DC hand for many years now. I've done a lot of think tank stuff. I've done some labor union stuff, campaigns and uh, advocacy on all sorts of issues. And so Jack is Jack and Laura have both just been good friends of mine for a long time. And Jack is a, you know, film director, but also a political junkie. And so during the 2016 election, you know, we were talking a lot, as we always do during election years. And he was coming to things with me. I brought him to the DNC with me and a couple other big events leading up to the election. And uh so pretty early on, like June 1st, 2016, I'd been thinking about how this didn't feel like an American election. My academic background was in Latin American policy, and this struck me, the 2016 campaign, I was like, this feels like we're in Bolivia, which is a problem, right? Um, And so to that end, I got stuck in traffic in Washington, as one does, and uh, was stuck in front of the Watergate building, and I was just kind of looking up at it, just thinking about the election, doing my thing, and I was like, wait a second this is, this is, they're working, this is a foreign power and they are working with somebody um, on the inside. And I, I called Jack and I was like, this, this, we keep saying this feels like a Latin American election, but this really feels like an Eastern European election. And this looks very Russian. And do you think he could be doing it with the Trump campaign? And Jack sort of talks me off ledges sometimes. And, you know, if I get too conspiratorial, he knocks it off, tells me to knock it off. And so um, he, but he was, he grew up 
in New York and Palm Beach hearing rumors of Trump uh, working with the Russian mob. And so he was like, that's actually not that crazy. Uh, and so we weren't going to really do anything with it, but we just sort of paid very close attention to it for the rest of the campaign. And so when the Senate hearings started, the first one was a former FBI agent named Clint Watts, and he testified between the Senate Intelligence Committee and said that the reason that active measures worked in the 2016 election was because the then candidate Donald Trump was parroting the Kremlin line and using these active measures himself. And Jack called me immediately afterwards and said, I want to make a movie about this. I said, great, you've got to do it. And he said, I need some access in Washington. I need help researching this. And so he came down pretty much the next day. And like Laura said, we went into our little bunker and researched all of this for several days. And then Laura came on. And then the next thing we know, we were making a movie. It all happened incredibly fast. I was in LA at the time and it was like, okay, get to Washington and let's start doing this. And then uh, Marley, I think, had set up a meeting uh, with with a think tank in Washington. And then we went in there. And at, at first, I was really like kind of a standoffish on the entire story because this was the first time I was hearing any of this. And I didn't even entirely understand the scope of what Jack and Marley were thinking and what they put together. But I was like, of course, I'm going to make whatever you want to make. I trust you guys. I know that um, you guys know what you're talking about. But then in that meeting with the think tank, when they were started comparing notes and uh, we started actually seeing the massive scope of what this was, that's when something changed in me. And I kind of felt like, okay, we need to keep this a small operation. We need to start using secure email. We need to start doing secure text messaging. And we were shooting interviews just a couple of weeks later. We just jumped right in and then it just became... Uh, you know, a snowball rolling down yeah, the hill. Yeah, really fast. Yeah, Marley, so you said in June, so before the election actually happened, you felt something. What was it that you felt that you thought that this didn't feel like a U.S. election? You know, I think that looking back, I'm able to pinpoint it much more so than I was at the time. Uh, but what it really was, was propaganda is what I recognized, right? The, the fake news that was coming out, I mean, the thing we refer to as fake news is really, it's weaponized disinformation, right? Um, and seeing these articles that were working. I'm from a very small town in Texas. I went to a public high school there and my Facebook is very much a lot of people that I went to high school with. And to see it take hold in sort of real time was very interesting to me because I was seeing all these articles being published on Facebook from places I'd never heard of, uh, outlets I'd never heard of, saying you know that Hillary Clinton is killing people and a lot of things that Maybe if I were on the outside, I would be like, wait, this is crazy. What's that about? And But because I've worked in D.C. for such a long time, I know a lot of people. I've been on a lot of campaigns. And I knew immediately, like, these are just lies. And this is being pushed in a way I've never seen. This is not political. This is something else. And I didn't really understand what that was at the time. But then right after I said that, they announced that the DNC had been hacked and, you know, there have been hacking campaigns all across Eastern Europe, especially. That's really Putin's MO. And so uh, I knew a little bit about Ukraine and Georgia and other places like that, former Soviet states and their elections. And so, you know, we just really dug into the things that we thought, well, that was a weird thing. That was a weird thing. And sure enough, uh, nothing was ever, <laughs> nothing ever came up that was like, nope, that's not it. There's just everything we looked into was more and more validity behind each thing. Yeah. You know, I remember that time actually, because I was not 
that active on social media, primarily because I spent my whole career in technology before I started doing this podcast. And I knew how vulnerable our information was. So I I never really wanted to be on Facebook or never really wanted to be on Twitter because I kind of saw things from behind the scenes. You know, nothing nefarious as other governments getting involved, but just kind of the the lax attitude around people's information. I saw that firsthand from the back end. So I was just never interested. So when I started watching the 2016 election from the social media side, I was just baffled. I thought, how how are people buying buying this? Totally agree with you. I was just I was so confused how people were buying it, and I think that that was really that you know what started us down this path was like this is working. So somebody's behind it. This is clearly an organized campaign. There's money behind this. There's things going on. And so who is it that's paying for it? And also, I mean, the the targeted messaging is such a critical element to this. I mean. I've been thinking about like another project to possibly look into would be something on data and democracy, because what we have in the U.S. here is kind of like the Wild West in terms of how we've been using data. Like companies like Facebook and Google, they use data in not such a bad way. They use it for advertising. But then when you have a foreign adversary understand that they can use micro-targeted data as a weapon against a country, that is something that, you know, we haven't seen before because it's new in the culture of humanity in general. And um, I think other countries have been a little bit better about sidestepping that. I think France might be a good example. And I think the U.S. has a lot of kind of catching up to do in terms of protecting people's data because the micro-targeting just opens a door into affecting people like we haven't seen before. One of the things that I think people don't talk about very often is, and you know, I don't mean to invoke <laughs> Godwin's law, and I hate doing that, but I'm going to do it. Uh, when you have people like Putin, you know, these kind of authoritarian, you know, quasi dictatorship kind of people, you know, there's always something personal, you know, something that goes back to like their childhood. And, you know, I thought the opening interview with Hillary Clinton, that just kind of floored me where she was telling this story about Putin and his parents. Is Do you know the story I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Was that a mode? And I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give any spoilers away. But was that part of the motivation for Putin, that that stick with him? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I really, I mean, we start out the film off with that really poignant story because we think it helps to give context in Putin's mindset. And the mindset here of Putin, of Trump, of all of these people involved is so critical, I think, to how they see their goal and their mission and how they can accomplish it. So, I mean, the psychology behind Putin, could that could be spoken about for a long time. And I'm sure there's many books written about it and great articles written about it. But the psychology of Trump is something that I think people should spend a little bit more time focusing on. And that's what I love about the movie as well is because we don't talk enough about him in the 80s and him kind of growing up in a sense. But Nina Brule, for example, who's in the movie, she's a Newsweek journalist and also the author of the newly published book, Golden Handcuffs. She talks about the women in Trump's life and how those women have helped to shape the man that he's become. And reading that book has been fascinating because she talks about Trump's father and his mother and the grandparents and how the business started and that Trump's grandfather had become ill. He eventually he started the concept of real estate and how to make money doing real estate and then eventually became ill. And Trump's grandmother had to really 
take that knowledge and actually build the business. And then it was Trump's father who grew up with Trump's grandmother doing this work and when Trump's father started to become of age and take on the business, he really pushed the grandmother out and kind of discredited her and never acknowledged her work or contribution to the building of this empire that they eventually created. So just that, and then the inner workings and kind of darkness within those relationships, which also has more dramatic elements to it, that is the inciting incident for how Trump starts to have his worldview crafted. And it's not from a place of love. It's kind of a dark world. And it's a world where we start seeing this massive pattern of disrespecting women come into play, you know, which also leads to one of his greatest weaknesses, which is the feeling of power over people. And especially the women that Putin has put in front of him and just that have come to him in general. I mean, you'll see it with the relationship with Ivana and then Marla and Melania. I'm not too sure about yet, but at least with his first two marriages, once those both of those women became involved in helping with the Trump brand and the Trump business. But then once you see those women to start gain independence with their work, you'll notice Trump pulls away from them and starts having more affairs and falling in love with other women. And I think that's kind of some of the elements of what he's attracted to. But I just I think that that's one small part of the mindset, which is originally what we started talking about between these people that are just completely power hungry. And I just think that also the way that both of Putin and Trump have grown up, I mean, it seems like it's not on this planet. Like they don't really feel like men of the people. They don't think they really understand what the commoner goes through. And I think it just becomes a giant game, you know, because their their concept of reality, of the reality of these countries that they're leading, it's just so different than the world that they've grown up in and known for their entire lives. Yeah. And they're and those worlds, they're extreme. I mean, Putin doesn't come with a silver spoon in his mouth per se, but he faced incredible hardships that were really, I think, probably emotionally, I don't want to say damaging, but incredibly influential into the things that he's done as a man. Yeah, absolutely. So Putin's motivations I find really fascinating. The lack of military power in Russia and the use of cyber warfare and political warfare as a surrogate for that, right? And I, I find that really interesting. And then, then also this desire to kind of elevate Russia or to, to build up Russia to be bigger than it is on the world stage. Like those things feel very personal. Oh my gosh, of course. I mean, that just gets to one of the cruxes of his overall motivation, right? It's, I mean, as we touch on in the film, it's that the collapse of the Soviet Union was an embarrassment and we have to do everything we can to rebuild Russia and to rebuild the world's perception of Russia, that it is a great country. I mean, within Russia, the perception that Putin has amongst his people is so important to him. And he's terrified of, number one, not being the leader of Russia anymore. And number two, having his people hate him. And funny enough, Trump feels the same way. I mean, both of these people very much care about how they're being perceived. Um, And especially when that comes to the power that they use to do things with, Russia is never going to be able to have a 
actual army that could make an impact in the U.S. And so they have to use the best tools that they have available to them. So when I was watching Active Measures, you know, I, I could not, I, I mentioned this offline, I couldn't stop swearing because the playbook that Putin deployed and that Russia deployed against the U.S., it's been used before, right? Can you outline what that playbook is? Putin's background is that of a KGB agent, right? And if you think back in the Cold War, um, you know, we were sort of enemy number one and vice versa with them. And the KGB had a lot of tactics that, first of all, the use of disinformation and propaganda was very, it was a staple of the Soviet state. And under Stalin, I mean, really saw a rise of propaganda. You know, we talk about the other countries that they've used, but I think that it's important for people to understand that this is a playbook that first worked in Russia. Um, and it is, you know, targeting people with propaganda and disinformation uh, to make them believe certain things about their government or about their world uh, and see the world in a certain way. And then the other thing that they did really well was they used, you know, sort of money and power to uh, influence certain people. So to gain total control of certain regions in Russia. Um, and then now we see it throughout the world. So this playbook has really evolved. The use of technology in this is really the only new part of this. This is something that's been happening for many decades. But, you know, social media has really just sped this up to a degree that I think that, you know, the Soviet Union would have really loved to see because it was much harder to get pieces placed in legitimate newspapers back in the day. And so now it's so easy to create a fake website and put a bunch of stuff on it and micro-target people and get it out there. But we lay out in the movie, we look, the countries we look at in the movie are Ukraine, Estonia, Georgia, and then the US. But he's really done it a lot of places. I think Ukraine really was the best example of it early uh, in 2004 during their Orange Revolution. He was able to hack that vote, really get the candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, on his side to speak a very Russian line. That didn't work very well that time. And so they had to sort of go back to the drawing board and figure out what would work. And so there was a couple of years where they were trying to figure that out. And they sort of figured out that they wanted to be able to use cyber attacks and hacking uh, as an important component of that. And the place that they were most successful in that was in 2007 in Estonia, where there was a DDoS attack on the government. And they were able to shut down Estonia as far beyond any other country in their use of technology. I, I felt like that attack was kind of just a little bit of like a like a slap on the face. Like it was a little bit in jest too, just for the timing of how they did that. Yeah, it, it totally was. Um, it, but I think that it, it proved very effective. They were like, oh, wow, we can definitely use these digital tools that are now at our disposal that never have been to attack a country. And so then we move forward and they invade Georgia. And that invasion did not go well. The international community was not happy about it. Russia was punished for it. You know, Georgia came out of that war with many more Western allies than Russia did. Um, and, and that was a problem for them. And they realized that kinetic warfare sort of a thing of the past for them. They don't have the military to invade, let's say, the U.S., for example, obviously. But they do have information, and they can target these people and bring their war to us in a different way. And by dividing us and sowing discord, and in the U.S., we see it on you know things like really divisive issues like gun control, um, Standing Rock, they had a big presence, Black Lives Matter, and then even weirdly stuff like I've been seeing a lot of Russian outlets pushing out the war on Christmas. 
by being able to do that in all of these countries, they find out what really matters in a culture. And then they capitalize on that to divide the country and lead them to a place where they don't really know what's going on and what to believe and how much they can trust their government and how much they can trust the media. It's very easy to go in and take what you want when everybody's looking somewhere else, you know? Exactly. And they also pick specific targets too, like people people or concepts, as, as Marley is saying, that the public can rally behind. Like using the example of Ukraine with Yulia Tymoshenko, I mean, the parallel between her and, and Hillary was just nuts in terms of that playbook working to uplift one candidate and bring down the other, just even we as the examples we use in the movie, some of their language is very similar. So over the years, and this isn't just like a decade worth of research and testing they've done, it's decades worth, right? This has been Putin's long game that he's been playing. And so in infiltrating these countries, they start to refine these tactics and really find out what's working and what's not working. And so when you finally get to the place of the 2016 U.S. election, you have a very sophisticated approach to how to infiltrate you know, what's happening here. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And then the only other thing I would add that you see is sort of a, a concept that we saw at least, um, or a similarity at least in Ukraine and the U.S. is the two people that were running those campaigns, the way that they attacked Yulia Tymoshenko versus Viktor Yanukovych, the way we, we saw that very similarly in the U.S. with Trump and Hillary. The constant there is Paul Manafort. He was running both those campaigns. So I just want to outline those, the pieces of the playbook really clearly here from what I picked up from your documentary. So he launches a disinformation campaign. And he also installs leaders in other countries that are friendly to Russia, right? You saw that in, I think, in Georgia and in the Ukraine or the attempts to, and I think in Estonia, right? Um, Estonia, they have not been successful with a leader, but, you know, that's really an example of the way that they've figured out how to not so much use kinetic warfare, but move on to non-kinetic information warfare. Right. So they say disinformation, they try to install a leader, right, that's friendly to Russia, which is what they did with the U.S., frankly. And also they use these other tactics like, you know, shutting off the power in the Ukraine, right, which is, I don't know what that falls under, you know, cyber warfare. And then also the parallel between um, Yulia Tymoshenko, right? Um, Can you talk a bit about those parallels? Tell us who she is and what are the parallels between her and Hillary Clinton? Yulia was a very wealthy woman in Ukraine. Uh, she and her family, she's from a family that controls a lot of the gas trade uh, in Ukraine. And so she, in 2004, 2003, 2004, 2005, we saw a trend within former Soviet states, that, which is referred to as the color revolutions. So the first one was in Georgia. With, it was called the Rose Revolution. And they all have sort of a color that they identify with. So in that one, it was red. And then the next one was Ukraine. And this is sort of the largest, most famous one is the Orange Revolution. And Yulia was one of the leaders of that. So her running mate, he was running for president. She was just a supporter of his. And so they were sort of the Western leaning candidates that's, you know, were looking to move out of the politics of just being a former Soviet state and move into a more Western sphere. Uh, so they they talked about they wanted to join NATO and the EU, and that's what they were looking for for their country, was moving towards more democratic, a liberal democracy. Then on the other side, you had Viktor Yanukovych, who was very much a Kremlin puppet. Um, he was a guy who had spent some time in prison for assault. He had a really shady background, and they were able to corrupt him very easily because he wanted their money and he wanted the power. And so, you know, they were able to approach him and 
help him rise. Uh, but during this campaign, the election of it was actually hacked and the numbers were changed uh, in parts of the country. There was more than 100% reporting for Viktor Yanukovych. Um, and in the in the main in Kiev and the more Western leaning centers, it was it was more of a normal vote tally. And so people took to the streets. They were really looking forward to being a liberal democracy for the first time. And so Yulia was sort of the leader of that. And she brought people from all over the country into the streets to protest this vote. And they were able to get it overturned and call a new election. And upon the new election being called a few months later, um, Yushchenko did win and Yulia became his prime minister. So she was the prime minister. And then in 2009, she ran for president and Viktor Yanukovych came back and was running again. And so they they were running for president against each other. And you started seeing this narrative form around Yulia that she was very corrupt and that her gas dealings had been really bad. She'd, she'd been forced to do a deal with Russia in order to get gas turned back on in their country at one point. And Interestingly enough, the Russians used that against her and said she sold out Ukraine um, and she sold a large portion of your natural resources, much like we hear with Uranium One, for example, which is just not the case in either case. Um, and so really focusing on her weakness as a woman, her corruption, and pretty quickly they started calling for her to be jailed, uh, and which we obviously saw in the U.S. And so that, I think, is the most striking parallel between the two, was the sort of chance around locking her up. That, that was effective. And Viktor Yanukovych won that election. The people fell for it. And, uh, and, and they actually did lock her up. And I think that was one of the things that when we first started this, it was like, this felt very pressing and urgent because... Everywhere else, political opponents go to jail all the time. Um, and, you know, the U.S., we've never seen that. And we don't want to see that because that is a real sign of a dictatorship. Uh, and, and so for us, we were, we were scared um, how closely this paralleled that election. And so, yeah, it really it pushed us to get on this right away because I think it's an important thing that around the world people need to understand that this is just a campaign. Yeah, you know, that was that was one of the moments where I gasped when I was looking, I was thinking, lock her up. They literally locked her up. You know, the, the, the parallels to, you know, Flynn being the one who was leading the lock her up chance, right? I mean, it's just amazing. It really is. And and Manafort is, you know, the guy who orchestrated that both times. So it worked and, you know, it, it's worked in a lot of other places, too. Can you talk a little bit about those power cuts? Because I want to link that to what's happening or what's been uncovered in the U.S., right? So supposedly Putin was behind power cuts in the Ukraine? Yeah. So they've had their grid hacked multiple times and their electricity shut down. Uh, they've also had the thing that they really do. So the power that Russia holds over Ukraine and really more broadly, the world, because we see this in so many places, including our relationship with them, is that they are one of the largest providers of oil and gas to the entire world. Um, and so actually, I think they are the largest. And so um, with Ukraine, they rely on them totally for natural gas. And so when Ukraine isn't acting the way that they would like them to, and they're not showing deference to Russia on a number of issues, um, they just shut their gas off. And Ukraine is a place that is very, very cold in the winter. Uh, it's like 
Canada. And so it's they they shut off the gas. People don't have that. And and that was that was the thing that Yulia had to go and deal with. But they also definitely do hack electrical grids and shut that down as well. And and we know that they have their capability to take our grid out as well. I mean, we've seen a number of national security officials testify in Congress in the last year saying we really need to take care of our our grid because it's very vulnerable right now. And we know that the Russians have have been able to access it in the past and are are able to do it. And really just, I mean, it's a question of pretty much when. Right, exactly. That was the scary thing when I was reading about this. They have been proven to have successfully hacked our power grid, right? And it's believed by some, maybe by everyone, that they have the ability to shut it off whenever they want, right? Mm -hmm. Like this one thing, You would think that it would be on the news every day because nothing's been done about it. Nothing's been done to secure our power grid. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are vulnerabilities in our power grids, but I think that what they've been, I think that we also have a lot more security in place than like Ukraine, for example. Right. And I do think that uh, makes a difference. Um, because we're just such a bigger, more powerful country, even though we do have vulnerabilities in that capacity. But I mean, if you look at the previous examples that we've been talking about, like Ukraine, how gas is so important for them and their relationship with Russia and Estonia, how with them, like having a cyber attack is one of the most detrimental things that can happen to their country. I think with us, when the US, it's about money, right? And so money laundering is one of our biggest weaknesses right now. And especially through real estate, which is more unregulated and murky and obviously a big prime example about the Trump-Russia connection or Trump-Putin connection here more specifically. So I think they're very good at understanding how to get in. Yeah, so let's talk about that because that is where Trump comes in. Because I think that, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I think that most people think of this Trump-Putin relationship or this Trump-Russia relationship starting you know, shortly before the 2016 election cycle. But, you know, honestly, you know, he's been targeted or they've had their eye on him since, what, the late 80s? Early 80s, actually. Early 80s. In some places, I mean, earlier than that. Some reporting is is earlier than that. But yeah, definitely mid-late 80s, they really ramped up. So talk about that. So what is the attraction with Trump's real estate holdings. What is the connection there with Russia? There's a lot. First of all, as Laura said, uh, real estate is really a hard market to regulate. Trump Tower, when he first built it in the 80s, was one of the first buildings in New York to have uh, shell companies be able to purchase condos. Uh, and so with that, we don't have to see who is buying them, uh, where this money's coming from. And so it's dark money that you're unable to see. And so they recognized very early that the Russian mafia specifically, which is really a part, it's a sort of apparatus of the Russian state, the Kremlin, the Russian mafia really moved into Trump Tower because the banks in the Soviet Union weren't safe. Keeping your money there wasn't safe. Uh, And so the safest thing to do with it is to get it out of the Soviet Union and now Russia. And so by buying very expensive properties in a place where you don't have to disclose where the money's coming from was a great way to do it. Uh, the U.S. real estate market was much more stable than anything they could be putting their money in the Soviet Union. And so they were able to do that. And through that, it's the money part and the laundering of that uh, and making it legitimate money. But it's also 
its influence because by living in those buildings, they're able to operate in influential circles uh, in the center of our world, New York, and and really help create a better idea of Russians and in, in the Soviet Union than they could at a time when there was this hysteria about the Cold War. And, you know, in order to fight that, they put people there. And a lot of these people, a lot of the mobsters that moved in there were also intelligence agents. And so they were there gathering intelligence on American elite. And some of them were very susceptible to it. And Trump was one of them. And we know he has, his ego is just beyond anything. Um, I mean, as a narcissist, it's really easy to talk a narcissist into anything, you know. Um, and so they, they played on all of that. And they, they hit all of those things early in New York with him in those buildings, but then really expanded out. There's a Trump couple Trump buildings in Miami that is now just known as Little Moscow. I mean, the, the signs in the buildings are in Cyrillic. There's just largely a Russian population there. Most of those people, many of them, are connected to the Russian mafia. And this guy, Semyon Mogilevich, is sort of the mob boss of them all. And, and that's that money going into there. And, and that was able to buy them, you know, a life in a new country and influence with an influential guy. That's amazing. <laughs> so is it is it fair to say that because I know that, you know, Trump is a terrible businessman, right? And he's had huge, huge failures. Is it fair to say that without this Russian dark money into his real estate, he'd be completely destitute? Yes, I believe it is, because uh, especially moving forward into the early 2000s after he went bankrupt in um, Atlantic City, he couldn't get banks to back him. No American Western banks would ever give money to a person that just kept losing it. As you said, he's a terrible businessman. Uh, and he's and he's terrible to do business with. He sues you. He lies. It's terrible. So nobody wanted that. He'd built a reputation. But the Russians really saw that as something they could exploit. This guy needed money. They had a ton of money they needed to get out of the country. And so in the early mid 2000s, the majority of Trump properties were being developed either in conjunction with or like in a partnership with or just by being financed by people high up connected to the Russian mafia. So I, I think that he absolutely could not have risen without them. What is it aside from, you know, the real estate connection and, you know, Trump's need for money? What else makes him a perfect target for them? Compromot. Compromot is compromising information that the KGB captured on everybody that they did business with and everybody operating in the Soviet Union. And, and now they've moved that onto the FSB, which is the successor organization of the KGB and uh, which Putin ran. So with Trump, it's very easy. We've seen so many women come out against Trump and you know, say, I had an affair with him um, or, you know, he assaulted me. Uh, separate issues. But um, but with him, I mean, he's he's a guy who has a weakness and it's women and sex. And so on his trips to Moscow, they made that very easy for him. I mean, one of the first meetings we had while doing this, we were talking to a State Department guy who used to have to go to Russia a lot. And he was saying that the State Department policy was that going home after being at a bar at night in Moscow was you had to have somebody else on the elevator with you. Uh, you were not allowed to get in an elevator as a man by yourself because they they followed you. The FSB or KGB has followed you and they, you know, they micro target you the way they do it like, online um, and, and know what your preferences are and send somebody that is very tempting into that elevator. And, and with Trump, it was, it was easier than that because he was, he 
was looking for it. And so, you know, they've created compromise tapes on people all over Europe and many intelligence officers and intelligence community officials have heard and believe that there there are compromise tapes that were created on Trump and then they've got him, you know. So between the carrot and the stick there, he's an easy target. And they did a good job of it. Yeah, but he's not the only one they bolstered, right? So there was, and you know, no one really talks about this very often either. Bernie Sanders, we know that those propaganda campaigns bolstered Bernie Sanders in his campaign or his run during the primary. And also Jill Stein. What was that about? Why did they want them? Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, that's part of the sowing discord part. And you know, the Kremlin really doesn't have a an ideological preference. Their only preference is that people are, whoever's running a country is very lenient with Russia and that they're not going to impose sanctions when Russia does stuff like invade Ukraine like they did last week. Um, And we have not responded to that. So this is a perfect example of why they want somebody in the White House that they control. But with Sanders and Stein, they were able to really target the far left in in the same way that they were able to target the far right with the same disinformation, but maybe focusing on a little bit of a different thing. Uh, So the corruption and connections to Wall Street uh, of, of candidates, they really pushed that. And that is something that the far left is really against. That was something that was really pushed and allowed Bernie voters after the convention and Hillary had gotten the nomination really pushed the idea that if it's not Bernie, if she's going to steal this convention from him, which she did not, that's that's a very complicated thing, how a convention works and delegates are chosen and how, what superdelegates do and regular delegates do. And without superdelegates, she still would have won. She won many more states and way more delegates than Bernie did. But that's a pretty complicated electoral process, the n- nomination it's in and of itself. And so to push to people who don't understand how that works, that she stole this from him. And on account of that, the only place to go here was either Jill Stein or to not vote. Actually, Tad Devine, who was Ron Sanders' campaign, was actually a partner of Paul Manafort's in Ukraine. He was another person working on these campaigns. And we've seen his name come up a couple times in Mueller filings, but I think that's something that is probably going to get more coverage as we sort of get out of the woods with the basics of what happened with the Trump campaign right now. Uh, But Tad Vine was certainly a big part of it. And the things that we've heard sort of off the record from people are there's a lot of shadiness going on. And with Jill Stein, though, she's just a very weird character. (laughs) She's just a very odd character. Uh, And the dinner in Moscow, the RT dinner that Flynn very famously attended, she was also at that table. She's somebody who's taken money from the propaganda wing of the Kremlin, RT, and other propaganda outlets, uh, and and has really played ball with them in a big way. Uh, you know, there's a very famous photo of her right after the election. The first place she went was Moscow and did a live address from in front of a very famous cathedral. And so she is somebody who I think deserves much more there should be more investigations into what's going on with her because while it's not readily clear where the money's coming from, I mean, there's just a lot of weird things about her campaign. It popped up very quickly. It was very well staffed, very well funded. And and that's not easy. Campaigns aren't easy to run. 
And she was able to do it in a very legitimate, very serious way. And so, and then was able to really push that the only way to do this was to vote for her and that Hillary was just a Wall Street neoliberal crony. Uh, And so Stein is, um, I think, somebody that really deserves a lot more attention than she gets. Uh, and, And I think that a concern for me, I'm a lifelong Democrat and I've worked on, I'm a a pretty good lefty. I've done a lot of union stuff. I've done a lot of civil rights work, equitable investment, all sorts of stuff. And I'm very concerned that the trend we will begin to see as the Republicans start sort of falling legally for what they've done with Russia, um, I'm really concerned that they're going to move to co-opt the far left. And I'm seeing it more and more in the disinformation that I follow, all of the Kremlin actors that I follow most closely, they're pushing a Kremlin line and, and it's it, it's being accepted. People people are falling for it. And one of the things that the left says and is that the people who are focusing on the Russia investigation and Trump in Congress are doing so instead of concentrating on what's really relevant in the daily lives of Americans. Um, and and this is just political and we need to move past 2016 and Hillary just lost. And so we're going to move past it. And uh, you guys need to stop obsessing about it. And, and they've sort of tried to make it this crazy thing that they're doing that where they're abandoning their constituents to just pay attention to something political. And my concern on that is that as we continue to see Russia influence the rise of these far-right fascist regimes all over the world, in Italy, in the UK, in France, Hungary, all over, we see that they start in a certain way and they move towards authoritarianism very quickly. Um, so Flynn, at some point, was a registered Democrat, right? And then he went to Russia. He went to the same the same conference or the same dinner that Stein went to. Um, how did he even get roped? into this? That's a big question. Yes, that's an interesting question. Uh, So he was a lifelong Democrat. Um, He was a career military intelligence guy. He ran the DIA under Obama. Um, And in 2013, he was always sort of a weird guy. People I know that know him have always just sort of said he's just just an odd guy and, and, and not not well liked, uh, I wouldn't say. Um, it's not the reputation I have gotten from this guy. Uh, and so in about 2013, he brought a delegation from the DIA to Moscow. Um, and it was an official thing and it was legit, though there were a lot of people within the same agency that were like, why are we doing this? This is crazy. And so he he brought this delegation there and he was actually the first American official to ever be let into the GRU headquarters. And he, and he bragged about that. He was very proud of that. And so then about, you know, a, six months later, I'd say beginning of 2014, he was asked to come to a Cambridge intelligence group um, at Cambridge University. And it was former head of MI6. It was a lot of very, very senior intelligence officials from around the world. And they were coming to talk about all of the pressing issues of the day, etc. There he met a Russian woman whose name was Svetlana. um, And it's rumored that they had an affair. I don't know if that part is true, but he certainly stayed in email contact with her. And that that much is very much true. We've seen some of those emails publicly now. Uh, But shortly after that, he just started getting really sort of off the hinges and got a too weird and too difficult to work with. And so he sort of pushed out of the DIA and became very bitter. 
And within a few months of being losing his job at the head of DIA, he became a contributor to RT and started, you know, doing a lot of things with different Russian outlets and then was invited to that dinner. We've all seen it. He sort of leads the standing ovation for Putin. He's sitting next to him and was paid for it, lied about it and joined the campaign pretty early, the Trump campaign, and towed a very Russian line on all rhetoric. And he brought up early his sort of being the initiator of the locker up chance, but on a lot of other things too. You know, he was very high up on, on the campaign and obviously in the administration in the beginning, but he also, towards the end of the campaign, took on uh, an advisory role for the board of Cambridge Analytica. Uh, and I think that's something that's not really focused on, but is certainly interesting because the, that organization was a big part of the operation um, in 2016. And he and he was there. Uh, he was also, you know, working on behalf of Turkey illegally as of last night, we know, and taking money from any sort of repressive regime that he could find, really, it seems to me. Laura Marley, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation and the, the documentary Active Measures. It's excellent. It's really excellent. <laughs> Good job. Thank you so much. And thank you for your incredible work for doing this podcast because we need more of that. We need to be talking about it and figuring this out. And so thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes, subscribe, and tell your friends. Also, please visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash and on Twitter, twitter.com slash and tell me what you think. And thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.